The works of the great 19th century opera composer Richard Wagner all have one thing in common. They're a vast exploration of the culture, the history, and the ideals of the German people. He was not only a prolific composer, he was also a prolific writer of books, essays, and pamphlets, all of which extolled his pet theories, from animal rights and vegetarianism to German nationalism, and the significance, of course, of music drama. In the midst of all of those writings is a hateful strain of invective targeted at the Jewish people. Now, that's the reality of Wagner. You have to separate yourself from Wagner the man, who could be cruel, insensitive, egomaniacal, and downright crazy, and Wagner the composer, whose works come as close to a definition of the sublime as any pieces of music written before or since. Thankfully, we're dealing today with an opera that has little or no relationship to Wagner's ugly side. It's a kind of morality play set in medieval Germany that tells the story of a knightly troubadour who ends up in bed with the goddess of love, Venus, tries to return to the human world and do good, but fails miserably, seeking redemption that may or may not come. This is the world of Arthurian legends and damsels in distress, the age of chivalry and competition between armor-clad knights. The opera, Tannhäuser, one of the early operas of this complicated genius. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Let's talk for a few moments about the sources of the Tannhäuser legend. There seem to have been two separate sources for the opera. One is the tradition of contests for minstrels that took place beginning in the 13th century at the Wartburg Castle in Thuringia, near the town of Eisenach. Europe had an explosion of minstrels at this time going back to the mid-12th century. It's the Minnesingers that Wagner focused on in writing a libretto for his opera, because they were noble knights in the service of the landgrave of Thuringia, who was the ruler that lived in the Wartburg castle. The important thing is that this was a, a very real cultural event revered all over Germany, and these minnesingers claim an important place in the development not only of song, but of literature. Of course, their significance was enhanced by the many legends that grew up around this song contest, and E.T.A. Hoffmann's story, The Singer's Contest, was probably Wagner's entry into this world of the Minnesinger. But the clever thing that the composer did in his research was to connect this world of the Wartburg and its song contest with the legend of Tannhäuser, the story of which came to him through the collected tales of the Brothers Grimm. The name Tannhäuser does come up in the very real history of the Minnesingers, but we know very little about him other than the fact that he liked to wander around Europe quite a bit. The Grimm Brothers' tale tells about his mistakenly wandering into the realm of Venus, the erotic goddess of love. While there, of course, he partakes of her uh, special charms, and then he repents. He makes pilgrimage to Rome in order to ask for absolution and forgiveness from the Pope, but he is refused. The Pope tells him there's more hope of his walking stick sprouting leaves than of his ever being forgiven for this sin. I guess spending a couple of years with Venus was just considered the worst thing that a knight could possibly do, a crime that was, well, unforgivable. In the story, Tannhäuser just shrugs his shoulders and goes back to Venus. 
But no sooner does he do that than the Pope's walking stick sprouts leaves, and the Pope sends his messengers all over Europe to try to find the poor knight, but alas, he's completely disappeared, never to be seen again. The last time we spoke about Wagner on this program, it was to track the creation of his opera, The Flying Dutchman. He was living in Paris, having a horrible time, and blaming all of his bad luck on the composer Giacomo Meyerbeer, who, by the way, happened to be Jewish. But it was actually Meyerbeer who arranged for Wagner's opera Rienzi to be produced in Dresden, and that eventually evolved into his being offered an important position in the court theater there in 1843. This was a royal commission, no less, from the king of Saxony himself, to be the Kapellmeister or conductor and music director of the opera theater. Tannhäuser was begun in the summer of 1842. Composition took two years, with the premiere taking place on October 19, 1845, in Dresden. Reaction to the work was mixed due to the inability of the lead tenor, Josef Tikacek, to grasp Wagner's intentions. The vocal demands of the role were certainly extraordinary for the time. Despite all of this, Tannhäuser was part of the repertory in more than a score of German opera houses within a decade of its premiere. Within three years of the production of the opera, however, Wagner was accused of incendiary actions during the 1848 Dresden Revolt, and he went running off yet again with an arrest warrant at his heels. The most interesting thing in the history of this opera is what happened when the composer attempted to revive it for the Paris opera 20 years later. You may have heard the standard story at one time or another. In producing and revising the opera, Wagner stubbornly kept the ballet of the Venusberg, a long erotic depiction of Tannhäuser's time with Venus, in the first act of the opera. Now, he'd been begged to reconsider by the management of the opera house, who knew that there would be hell to pay with a particular group of young businessmen and aristocrats who called themselves the Jockey Club. And the Jockey Club members never showed up to the opera until the second act. You see, all of the operas produced in Paris had their ballets set well into the second act so that the Jockey Club, many of whose members had mistresses in the corps de ballet, could enjoy seeing their protégés and wards on stage dancing in skimpy costumes. And so at that first fateful performance of Tannhäuser, the boos and catcalls flew when they realized that they'd missed the ballet. Now, there's some controversy that it's possible that the uproar wasn't about the young men's mistresses at all. The Emperor Napoleon III was encouraged by the opera-loving Princess Pauline de Metternich, whose husband was an Austrian diplomat, to invite Wagner to produce Tannhäuser at the Paris Opera. The Austrian prince and his wife were very influential in the court of the French emperor, and they were quite unpopular because of that influence. According to the Wagner historian Barry Millington, the famous debacle of the Paris Tannhäuser was not so much about the jockey club's mistresses, but rather a demonstration against the Austrian princess's influence on Napoleon III. In any case, Wagner gave up after three performances, had the opera withdrawn, and went back to Germany. The thing that's important is that out of all this performance history, 
we have two decidedly different versions of the opera. There is the Dresden Tannhäuser, and there is the Paris Tannhäuser. The Paris has the advantage of having passages that are more in line with Wagner's later style, more colorful orchestrations, more chromatic sliding from key to key, more etched-out characterizations, particularly of the character of Venus. But either version presents a kind of medieval morality play with music and sets the stage for enjoying Wagner's other operas that sprang from German culture. Lohengrin, Die Meistersinger, Tristan und Isolde, The Ring, and Parsifal. In the first act of the opera, we find our hero Tannhäuser lolling about in the arms of Venus. He longs for a simple earthly life once again and sings a threefold hymn to the goddess, each one ending with a plea to be released from her grasp. She finally relents, adding, one day he'll return to her. The goddess and her sensual Venusberg disappear, and he's suddenly in a quiet valley at the foot of the Wartburg castle. A group of pilgrims wanders by, awakening a desire for contrition in his heart. The landgrave of the Wartburg and his minstrel knights come into view and ask if he returns as a friend or a foe. Tannhäuser answers that he seeks salvation and therefore can't stay around very long, but in the conversation the name Elizabeth is mentioned. He once loved her, but she no longer comes to the minstrel's contests. Reminded that she's always listened to his songs with rapturous interest, he joins their company and returns to the Wartburg with them. In the second act, we meet Elizabeth. Reunited with the long, absent knight, she asks him where he's been, but he responds mysteriously, trying to evade the truth. The landgrave and the knights appear for the song contest, and it begins with the knight Wolfram, at one time Tannhäuser's closest friend, and now his rival for Elizabeth's hand. Wolfram begins the contest with an ode to pure love, but is bested by Tannhäuser's song, which has elements of pagan sensuality. It soon becomes clear to everyone where the knight minstrel has been, and he's almost killed by the gathered crowd of knights when Elizabeth steps in to protect him. The landgrave banishes him, but gives him a chance to redeem himself by going to Rome with some passing pilgrims. Only there can he find forgiveness, and the bereft knight marches off to Rome. Does Tannhäuser receive the redemption he so desperately seeks? Is he ever reunited with Elizabeth, or does he return to the arms of the goddess Venus? Those are the questions that face us in Act 3 of Tannhäuser. My guest today is Dr. Joe Colombo, professor of theology at the University of San Diego. Welcome back. It's good to have you here as always. It's a pleasure to be here, Nick. Now, Tannhäuser has some very interesting background theologically and historically. Give us a little bit of, a, of an, an analysis of Tannhäuser. Well, in some sense, your viewers are going to know about the, the song contest in the second act. But Wagner has really outdone himself in this opera by fashioning the entire opera as a grand contest on two levels. Uh, ancient culture, ancient classical culture, had two words for love, eros, 
and agape. Eros was a more possessive, acquisitive love, which taken to an extreme is lust, and agape, a more disinterested love, a love that looks out for the well-being of the beloved. Is agape also a kind of sacrificial love? It, it taken to its, um, in the Christian story, um, of redemption becomes the exemplary uh, instance of agape. So on the one hand, we have this contest between agape and eros, and at the same time, Wagner fashions it that it's a contest between the gods of the old religion, Venus, who when she is driven out of Olympus, hides in the Horselberg in a cave, um, and um, the gods of the new religion, Christianity. Um, and in some sense, Wagner melds this to form the entire drama. And it's important to recognize this because one might think that there's a bit of an overreaction in the second act. <laughs> when, when everybody runs screaming from, from yes, the song contest. And, and the swords yeah. are drawn right. by the knights in the Wartburg, and you say, well, why? Well, the real reason is um, Tannhäuser's sojourn with Venus isn't just a sin of lust, it's a sin of apostasy. Ah. He has abandoned um, um, the true God and now needs um, to be reconciled and brought back and no one can see the way through. Okay, so, so to simplify things, Venus represents Eros Very and so. our dear, sweet, pure Elizabeth, who is the niece of the Landgrave of the Wartburg, is uh, representative of Agape. Agape. <laughs> and she is the one, of course, who intercedes and places herself uh, between the knights and Tannhäuser. Um, and talks them down um, so that there is a chance given to Tannhäuser. And at the end of the act, she's the one who presents to him the possibility of redemption. Knock Rome. Yeah, off to Rome. Off to Rome. And off he goes. And off he goes. Uh, uh, So then what happens? I mean, how, um, how is it, do we feel, in this tussle between Eros and Agape, between the Venus woman and the Elizabeth woman, how does it end up? I mean, do, do we feel at the end of the opera that, it's, um, that the whole problem is solved? Well, it's solved in a miraculous way. Um, um, Tannhäuser goes off to Rome and is denied absolution by the Pope. Which is the legend, actually, yes. of, of Tannhäuser himself. And that he goes to Urban IV and right. Urban IV denies that um, um, absolution. Because all of this is based loosely on historical figures. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, in the scriptures, it said the one unforgivable sin is apostasy. And hence, um, um, the Pope says, um, you have as much chance of being forgiven as my staff has of blooming uh, with flowers. And Tannhäuser returns uh, um, uh, to the Wartburg, um, desp- despondent. And here he finds out that Elizabeth has literally pined away for him and in some sense sacrificed herself for him. And in his last moments, he hears um, that the uh, staff has indeed sprouted in Rome. And again, we're left with a very, very positive uh, message of redemption. It's interesting that, that a lot of Wagner's operas deal with this whole issue of redemption. Very much so. I mean, um, uh, Patrons of San Diego Opera, of course, will recognize uh, here the theme of the Flying Dutchman. It's through Senta's love that the Dutchman is finally redeemed. Um, And then again in Tristan, you have a sort of perverse mirror image. It's Eros that redeems in this case. 
Thank you very much, Joe, for coming and joining us. It was my pleasure. Let's take a peek inside Wagner's musical process in Tannhäuser. As you already know, in Act One, he's languishing in the arms of Venus in her realm, the Venusberg surrounded by nymphs and bacchants who are having a good old orgiastic time. But we also know that he's gotten tired of laying around doing nothing. Well, almost nothing. And he begs Venus to let him go back to the world, the world he knows, the world he remembers, and the world he loves. Now, what I want you to notice is how Wagner deals with Tannhäuser's threefold petition to Venus. In essence, this is a voluptuous hymn to Venus, ending with a polite yet ever insistent request to leave. Since our hero is a minstrel knight, Wagner uses the closest thing to a medieval lyre that he had at hand in his mid-19th century orchestra, and that, of course, was the harp. So to the accompaniment of the harp, and the harp only, Tannhäuser sings his first request. At the end of this hymn comes his actual request. O Königin, Gürten, lass mitzin. O Queen, O Goddess, let me go. O Königin, Gürten, lass mitzin. So the first time around, a simple accompaniment by the harp and a model song that refers back to the medieval sources of the story. The minstrel knight accompanying his self-composed hymn on his portable instrument. As you can imagine, Vetus resists essentially asking him, what's wrong with you? And so again, Tannhäuser launches into his hymnic plea, buttering her up with praise, but ending his second verse with the same petition, O Queen... Uh, oh, goddess, let me go. Now, Wagner does a really clever thing with this repetition of the song. The harp is still there in the fabric of the accompaniment, but now it's only a partial member of the ensemble. This time, the strings in the orchestra get involved in the act, adding a kind of plucked punctuation to the continuous movement of the harp. On top of that, Wagner raises the whole song up a half step in pitch, the first version of this hymn to Venus was in D-flat major. Now it's in D major, adding another dimension to the intensity of Tannhäuser's request. Request to be let go is repeated as well, still a half step higher. O oh, 
Kernigan, O Queen. Girton, Goddess. Let me go. Now, Wagner ratchets up the excitement for a third version of the hymn after Venus protests. He raises the pitch once more, this time to E-flat major. So we've gone from here, E-flat major, to here, D major, to here, E-flat major. Much to the poor tenor's chagrin, and he adds wind instruments of the orchestra to the harp and the strings. Mind you, the harp is still an important part of the ensemble, but halfway through this iteration of the tune, the harp drops out, almost as if Tannhäuser himself has dropped his emblematic instrument, so intent is he on returning home, and the whole orchestra takes over. Finally, at the end of this version of the hymn, the orchestra, even the brass section in the orchestra, takes over completely with great stabbing chords, finally insisting that this is it for his sojourn in the realm of Venus, and he will go whether she likes it or not. Now here's the kicker. In the second act, in the middle of the song contest with all the other knights singing heroic songs about loyalty, chastity, and the sweet love between man and woman being like a font of purity, Tannhäuser loses complete control and launches into this paean of passion, lust, and the giving over of oneself completely to human love without any regard to godly things. And just what tune do you think Wagner gives him? You guessed it, the knight's earlier hymn to Venus. But the pitch is raised once more to E major. And the orchestra has full sway over the accompaniment, featuring shimmering strings at the top to give the tune a real kick. The song ends ambiguously as the orchestra enters into a concertato section for all of the gathered knights, nobles, ladies, and the horrified Elizabeth. What an exciting way to use a tune to show the development of a character in an opera. number of good recordings of the opera Tannhäuser for you to choose from, but I'll just highlight a few of them for you.
First of all is this recording of the Dresden version of the opera on the mid-priced Philips label with Wolfgang Windgassen as Tannhäuser, Birgit Nilsson as both Venus and Elizabeth, and Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau as Wolfram, with Otto Gerdes conducting the chorus and orchestra of the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. This is an older recording, and quite frankly, Windgassen is not in the best of voice, but Nilsson is wonderful, and this is one of the few recordings of the authentic Dresden version. Another terrific recording is this 1970 Decca release of the Paris version with René Collo, Helga Dernisch as Elizabeth, Christa Ludwig as Venus, and Victor Brown as Wolfram. This is the one I cut my teeth on many years ago, and I still prefer it to many others. Georg Scholte conducts the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra in a searing performance, with Ludwig as a standout as Venus. We also have a recording with Hans Hopf in the title role, Elisabeth Grimmer as Elisabeth, Marianne Schech as Venus, and a very young Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau as Wolfram. And in the small role of Walter, one of the minstrel knights, is tenor Fritz Wunderlich in one of his few commercial recordings of an entire opera. All of these artists are under the direction of Franz Konvichny from the Deutsche Oper Berlin. Here's a contribution that stunned many people because of its casting before they actually heard it. A Deutsche Grammophon release with Placido Domingo in the title role of Tannhäuser, Agnes Balza as Venus, Cheryl Studer as Elizabeth, and Andreas Schmidt as Wolfram, with Giuseppe Sinopoli conducting the Philharmonia Orchestra. Domingo may not be an ideal Tannhäuser, as opposed to his wonderful portrayals of Parzifal and Lohengrin. And his Tannhäuser is beautifully sung, but that's part of the problem, really. He simply doesn't show enough of the angst that should be heard in the depths of this character. But Studer's Elizabeth is wonderful, and the orchestral playing and great digital sound is a big draw for this recording. In terms of DVDs, in my mind, there is only one. This, from the Metropolitan Opera with Richard Cassily in the title role, Tatiana Troianos as Venus, Eva Martin as Elizabeth, and Bernd Weichel as Wolfram. James Levine conducts the Metropolitan Opera Chorus and Orchestra. This is a fantastic production that we're really lucky to have on DVD. Troianos and Cassily were ideal in their roles at this time, and the production itself, designed by Gunther Schneider-Siemsen, is absolutely stunning. It was based on a production that the designer had done for the Vienna State Opera and that we're using as the basis of our own production here at San Diego Opera. If you have a DVD player, go for this over any of the CDs. It's simply unforgettable. Any one of these resources will give you hours of listening and viewing pleasure. The one thing that people seem to think about Wagner operas is that they're long. It's interesting, though, since the advent of supertitles, I hear that complaint less and less. You see, when you know exactly what it is that these characters are singing about, you get into the drama of the opera and you begin to connect the words being sung with the music that you're hearing from the voices and from the orchestra. Then it all makes sense and you're able to realize that Wagner isn't really long at all. It's just as long as it needs to be to tell the story. Enjoy. I'm Nick Ravellis, and I'll see you at the opera. <laughs>